Some of you know that three weeks from today is Easter, which is always weird. A, a lot of people get, you know, it sneaks up on you because, oh, wait, I forgot to dismiss the, uh, actually, you guys need to hear this. You need to hear my Easter plug, and then I'll let you go. Um, Easter's coming. It's three weeks away. We have a lot of big Easter events, and Easter is a vital time in the life of the church for a few reasons. One, it causes us to stop and pause and celebrate and remember the resurrection of Christ. Two, Easter is the most visited Sunday of the year for people who don't go to church. Now, why does that matter to me? I've told you before, I don't have to be the biggest church. I don't care. What I care is that there's a world full of people who are looking for a message of hope and life that I believe we have. And so it's not about, hey, how big can we get? It's about, hey, what about my friend? What about my cousin? What about my neighbor? They're really going through a hard time in life. Where do they turn and and who do they have to support them in that? The average person has to be invited to church 10 times before they'll show up. Now you say, I came the very first time and it changed my life. Great, then that means your friend's got to be invited 20 times, so you better get on it. Way to blow the curve for everybody else. Um, Don't be afraid to invite somebody. We have, still we have the winter invitations out. Next week, the spring slash summer invitations go out. They're these simple little cards that just say, place to find purpose and belonging. They have our motto on the back. They have our address and our website. It's not like in your face, you need this. It's just, hey, I like my church. Or if you're having a conversation, it's an easy way, non-threatening to invite. People hand out business cards all the time. should see the stack I have. I don't know why, but I save them, never to be looked at again. And I put them inside my rubber band. I have now three stacks, probably I probably have three, four hundred business cards that people have given me just, I got rid of all of them before I moved here, so that's just in the time I've lived here. I have no idea why I saved them, because I never look at them again, but they go in my stack. You guys, just grab a few. Um, again, we'll have the spring, summer ones will be out next week. The last of this year's winter ones are back there today. Invite someone, encourage someone, and finally, my last plug, Wear a name tag. If this, if this is not your church, if you're just like, eh, I'm still checking you guys out, then I don't expect you to. If this is your church, wear a name tag. And here's why. Because some people are great with names. I still remember my friends from third grade. I still know every teacher's name I ever had. I met somebody last night. Still remember the eight people that I met last night at the, um, what, what do you call that? The little place, escape room where I have to get out. I met eight people. Remember all their names. If I see them on the street next week in Seattle, I'll call them by name. It'll scare them to death. But other people... Not so good at names. And so you've met them. In fact, you met them three times and even went out to coffee with them once, but you don't remember quite their name. You know it's either John or Jim or something maybe with a J. And you certainly don't know their spouse's name. Make it easy on the people around you. It's not, you don't wear a name tag for you. You wear it so that the people around you know who to call you. And also so that if we do have visitors on Easter, yes, we wear name tags around, but if we do have visitors on Easter, they can feel like they know someone. All right? So that's my plugs. Students, you are dismissed to go with Gold Star Teacher of the Year Award winner for the Highline School District. Much to his chagrin, read somebody. He's been Teacher of the Year since I've been here for the Seattle Times, for Cairo Channel 7, and now for the Highline School District Teacher of the Year. And he hates when I embarrass him, but go with Reed, you guys. And you guys, make sure you tell him good job if you didn't already know.
Boy, he slipped out fast. <laughs> it's funny, he keeps getting awarded, and, I, and he, we were talking a while back, we go to dinner about once a month, and we were talking, to, uh, this was before he even got this one this week, he's like, I'm not sure why they keep awarding me, and I said, because you won't like, put it on your resume yet, and so they have to keep doing it until you'll let everyone know. Then they'll go, oh no, now he's gotten enough, because everybody knows. We are blessed to have him. He literally, this is the third year in a row that he's won a teacher of the year from some organization. And he comes and he volunteers to teach our students. And uh, I really do hope that you appreciate him. And if you have students in, in his class or in his Sunday school class, I hope that you'll tell them, hey, thanks for teaching our kids. If you've got your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Some of you are thinking, shouldn't we be doing an Easter series? Yes, we are. It's the cost of having a king. Everybody, you know, everybody says, yeah, Jesus is great. And, you know, the whole Jesus is just all right with me. Great little song. We had the Jesus People Movement in the 70s. I I remember it well. I've told you before about at our church in Detroit. Again, this was my first church experience that I can remember because I was four when we moved there. And it was all, I was there up until I got into junior high. And so I didn't understand that this wasn't like other churches or that I didn't understand what was going on in the world. But we were a multicultural church, which doesn't happen. If you look around, most of our people pretty much look the same. We were inclusive, but they say Sunday morning is still the most segregated day in America because people go to churches that have people that look like them. And I grew up in this place where things were happening. And people, they dug Jesus, but it didn't change their lives. It changed things, but it didn't impact them 30, 40, 50 years later the way we want to see it. And if you don't know what I'm talking about or believe me, think about this. Think about if you grew up in the church, think back to when you were 12, 15, 18, 21. Think of the number of people you went to church with that are still involved and active, maybe not in the same church, obviously, but still involved and active and and plugged in to where God is today. And it's not because God has changed. It's because it's really hard to really give over everything to who he is. And that's really what this series is about. It's about what does it really look like for us to really worship God like like he's the king, like Jesus really is that king of kings. What does that look like? What does that mean to my life today and tomorrow? How does that cause me to live differently than somebody else? So if you've got your Bible and you've turned there, I'm going to read that in just a second, but I want to give you a few statistics. Um, People, for some reason, love the monarchy in England. I've studied monarchies heavily the last few weeks. I was telling my son, it's interesting. The monarchy in Norway, they, you know, Norway is an independent nation. They got taken over by Sweden. Sweden decided to give them their independence in the early 1900s, and they needed a new king. I'm not sure why. They could have looked and said, wait, there's other options. But they decided they needed a new king. So they contacted the royal family in Denmark and had them send over their second son because the eldest was heir to the throne of Denmark. So the king of Norway's family wasn't actually Norwegian. He was actually from Denmark. And they've had that line of monarchy since then. Interesting. Someone just got appointed king. In uh, 
England, which is the United Kingdom, kind of has the epitome of all monarchies, the one by which the rest of the world wishes if you're going to be a king, that's the good place to do it. The royal wedding that happened a couple of years ago, two billion people worldwide tuned in to watch it. You don't think people want somebody in charge? Two billion people watched the royal wedding. Nearly one-third of the world's population. The only thing that even comes close to that is the World Cup. Serious, that's the only thing that even comes close to those kind of numbers. 23 million Americans, nearly 8%, one out of 12. Anybody in here watch William and Kate get married? Wow, we're over one out of 12, all right. We're beating the average. We got about 12, 15% of our congregation watching it. The Queen of England makes an estimated $1 billion a year, and that's tax-free. She pays no taxes. The royal family are the largest landowners in the United Kingdom. And yet, there's some opposition. But currently, 93% of people in England support the monarchy. People want to serve a king. We clamor for freedom and we say we don't like it. But if you really look at the history, and last year I read seven books on George Washington and the American Revolution. And uh, in 2017, it was kind of my theme for the year, and I read seven different books. And really, America fought not because they didn't want a king, but because they felt the king didn't care about them any longer. Nearly 20% of all Americans prior to the revolution still supported the monarchy. Post-revolution, 11% of Americans, even after the Revolutionary War was done, 11% of Americans wanted us to make up with England and go back under the monarchy, saying, we've made our statement, now let's go back under the rule of the king. After the Revolutionary War, there was debate and discussion regarding what type of government system are we going to have. And though it was a minority, they were very vocal about the idea that now we're our own independent country, we need to put a king in place. As much as people want freedom, people really do want to be under a king. It's the same thing I say that as much as people hate legalism, most people say, if you just give me five rules and I only have to do these five things and then my life will be good, they'll take a list of five things instead of actual freedom that says, you've got to make these choices and decisions for yourself. See, it sounds great to have total free will, but the problem with that is that then it falls on me to really have to work these things out, and that's hard and painful and difficult, and I don't want to do that. I want to follow five rules and have a better, happier life, and I get to go to heaven, and everybody who doesn't, well, just sucks for them. That's what we want. But the reality is we're faced with decisions every day. First Samuel chapter 8. This is the people of Israel, and they decide they want a king because the nations around them have a king. It says, Then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. This is uh, verse 4, in case I didn't mention that. And said to, them, said to him, Look, you're old. Well, that's a nice way to start a conversation. I wish I could talk to people that way. Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. 
But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should reign over them. According to all the works which they had done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said to them, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over the thousands, captains over his fifties. will set them some to plow his grounds and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it as offerings to his, to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and he will put them to work for him. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because you are king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us. So, they're warned that if you take a king, all these things, all these freedoms you currently have. Because the current system they were under was a system of judges. And it's funny that they bring up Samuel's kids only because it didn't go from judge to his children. It went from judge, passed on to the people were finding the next judge based on who they felt God told them to put in that place. The people had been electing their own leaders. Now they're saying, give us a king. And God's saying, you don't want that. Right now, the system that you have is the judge and the prophet work hand in hand. One brings my word and the other helps you guys and navigates. And they're like, no, we want to be like every other country. We want a king. Five things that we can learn from this passage about our life. Number one, God had a better plan for the people. Under his authority, they actually knew freedom. They were still given a system where they had protection and leadership. That's how the judges were set up, was to protect the people, resolve disputes. And he warns them, as soon as you take a king... There's all kinds of things the king's going to do. Because kings have to have parades, and kings have to have people that go before his chariots, and kings have to have chariots, which means they've got to be made, and kings have to have, they own lots of land. In many kingdoms, the king technically owns all the land. You just pay rent. But you've been there for decades, generations. It doesn't matter. You're now under the king. Second thing we can see from this passage is the people want to be just like everybody else. People want to fit in. They're envious of what was around them, but they didn't really understand the cost. They want to be like everybody else. They want to look like other countries. They want to act like other countries. They want to be just like everybody else. And yet they were surrounded with people who had no relationship with God, no reflection of who he was. 
And God's looking and saying, I've set you apart for something more. And he does the same thing in your life. And he looks at you and he says, I've set you apart for something more, but we want to be just like everybody else. And I'm not just talking about keeping up with the neighbors and, and wealth, but in many ways in life, we want to be just like everybody else. We want to be seen as influential. We want to be seen as powerful. We want to be seen as these things. When in reality, the most beautiful description can be child of God, a servant, kind. But those aren't the descriptions we look for. That's not even how we define ourselves. We define ourselves differently. But in, in this context, God is looking and saying, you've got something so much better if you've got something so much better, why do you want to sell out just so that you look like everybody else? Why? Why do you have to look like everybody else? When they willingly give up their freedom, they lose something, some of what made them a great nation. The reason they were a great nation, the reason that it all worked for them, it's because God set them apart for something else. But when they say, we don't want God, we want our king, he looks, he says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're not rejecting your system. They're rejecting what I set up. It's still, it's pretty hard for Samuel not to take it personal here. He's been this guy, he's in a long line of people doing the same thing, and now the people come and go, yeah, we want a king. He's like, but why? What have I done? Oh, no, we want a king and be like everybody else. And God's looking and going, it's not you. They're rejecting me. But it doesn't feel that way to Samuel. Samuel's still the one who feels like, I was the last one. I'm the one that blew it. We had this great system going. The fourth thing that we see in this passage is it cost them far more than what they expect. They're no longer making offerings to God. See, that's the beautiful thing about an offering. It's what you choose to give. If you ever listen to how James does it, we never collect, we never take, we only receive. We receive an offering because it's, if you want to give it, give it. If you don't, that's between you and God. I've told you before, I'll find other ways to keep the lights on and keep the doors open. And so when people, I've had people withhold their tithe, and they'll, usually they let you know especially me, because I don't ever look at the books. <laughs> and so they have to tell me personally if they're withholding, or I wouldn't know. And when they do, I'm always like, okay, well, take it up with God, because whether you give or not doesn't have anything to do with what we're doing week to week. And I don't say that in an arrogant way. If everybody quit giving and everybody walked out the door, then it would have to be, I'd have to be looking at myself and asking what I did. But the reality is, when people give, they're not giving to me either. They're not really even giving to this church. They're giving to this church in the sense that we're a clearinghouse for what God wants to do. And so some people will look and they'll say, boy, you spent a lot of money on A or B or C. You know, our playground, pretty expensive playground. We could have gotten one at Home Depot for much less. But we wanted safe. We wanted it to be attractive. We wanted something that could be movable if later on we do move to another facility or another building somewhere. These are things we took into consideration. So when you give and you say, well, how is a playground, how does that matter? Here's how, a few ways it matters. Number one, it says to our youngest, our littlest people, you matter here and you belong here. And if you convince kids when they're 
2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 17 and 18 and 19 and 22 and 36 and 84 that they belong here, somewhere along the way they're going to start to believe it. Second thing it says to our MOPS group, we care about your children, we care about the safety of your children. Our MOPS group is the moms of preschoolers. They meet one Tuesday night a month. There's about 20 to 25 moms, probably about 30 to 40 kids. Depends on the week, sometimes less, sometimes more. Am I way off on number of kids? Jenny's, yeah. So less kids. But we're 20 to 25 moms. Okay. Okay, so 15 moms, 15 kids. But I do know we have been larger in the past. And moms of preschoolers, it's not... The, the whole reason we do it is to say to moms, hey, you probably need a break sometimes. Hey, we care about you. Come on out. We provide child care. We do these things so that they know that they're valued. And we give a playground so that kids have somewhere to play that's safe and fun. These aren't people even in our church. These are people in our community that gather together. I could keep going on. There's reason after reason after reason that I could go on. So does... By giving money here and we build a playground, some people will say, well, how is that making use of our money? What it is is this. It's saying these people matter. Our community pancake breakfast Easter egg hunt, it costs us roughly 500, 600 bucks. Last year we served 200 people pancakes. 200 people came out and had a pancake. That's more than we have on a Sunday morning. I'd say 70% of those people have never walked in the door. But you know what we said? You matter to us. We care about you. We care about your kids. Isn't that what the kingdom of God really is about? Is looking at people that don't know him and saying, you matter. Wasn't that the message Jesus came with? Because he looked at you when you were still a sinner and he said, you matter to me. And now he's telling us, now go and tell the world that they matter. And so that's what we're here to do. But it costs them far more than they planned when they get a king because no longer is it choosing to make an offering to God. You're now required to pay homage. Big difference between giving what I choose with an open heart and being told what I have to give. Here's the difference. We say, this is... You know, this is what we do and this is how we operate. We have our, our books are open and you can look and see what we spend money on and how we do it. And then there's the government who tells me exactly what I have to pay. Anybody paid their taxes yet this year? I just filed mine. The government tells me what I have to pay. And I get so frustrated because I feel like you're wasting my money. I'm one of the few people I know who says, ah, it's not that I don't want to pay taxes. It's that I feel like you don't make good use of the money I give you. Well, you didn't make good use of it last year. Why would I want to give you more this year? I give away a good portion of my money. I'm not saying this to brag. I just want you to understand. We give 10% to our church, and we give 5% to other things that we believe in. That can be Girl Scouts. That can be the elementary school invites me to their little charity auction, and I show up for that. I go to whatever, basically, any kid doing a fundraiser I support 
any kid doing whatever. We have other charities that we believe in. We have missionaries that we are friends with that we support. And so I give 10% because I, I really believe that that's what God has asked me to do. And then the other 5%. You know what? I love giving away that 15%. I hate giving the 33 and a third percent or whatever it is this year to the government. I like roads. I like police. I like to feel safe. But I look and I go, I don't like this, and I I won't get into the things I don't like because then it gets political, but I don't like this and I don't like that. And why are they using my money for that? That's the difference between living and just having God be over you and being under a king. The king demands that they give 10%. The king demands that they give the best. The king comes in and says, I want this, I need this, I'm taking this. As you get in, as you, if you read on and followed Saul, you'll see that over and over and over again, Saul takes what he wants. Saul takes what he wants, and he just keeps it. The final thing we see from this passage is that it breaks God's heart. He gave you free will, and yet you're choosing to say, we'd rather have a king to tell us what to do. I'm telling you right now, churches that are legalistic, one of the reasons they can grow and thrive is because they tell you what you can and can't do and it becomes about image and you learn which side you're on and you can shut everybody else that's not like you out. God looks and he knows what's best for us but he allows us to chase what we want. Just your whole life, God allows you to chase and pursue what you want. A few things the text doesn't say is we don't have to follow leaders. We have clear instructions to follow those in authority over us, but you still have free will. You don't have to choose to follow the person who's up here. You don't have to choose to follow your boss. You don't have to choose to follow, but there's consequences if you don't. So be careful who you put in power and in authority over yourself. The text never says that all is lost. God has a plan for us, even once we say that we want a king. But part of his plan all along was he was going to send someone. And it's not accidental that in the Old Testament, he's called the king of kings. People don't necessarily want to follow the king who's going to sacrifice themselves. Following the king of kings doesn't cost you anything, but it forces you to ask, who am I? When you follow Jesus, it forces you to ask that question, who am I? Because you have to understand who you are in Christ. And the more you follow him and the longer you follow him, the more you have to ask yourself that question, who am I? Because if God loves me exactly as I am, but he also loves me too much to stay the same, what's going to have to change in my life if I'm really going to follow him? What do I have to give up? What do I have to stop doing? What do I have to alter And who do I have to become in order to really follow him? We don't like to have to struggle with that and wrestle with that, but that's the reality. The third thing it never tells us, it never says God removed his spirit from them. God's spirit is still with them. He looks and he says, it's not you they've rejected, it's me they've rejected, but God never rejects them in return. Man, what a great reminder that when you screw up, when you sin, when you've blown it, God does not reject you. It breaks his heart, and his Holy Spirit prompts you 
But God never rejects you. He never looks and says, you're not worthy, you're not acceptable. Those of you who think, I'm not worthy, I have something to tell you. You never were. You only had the right look, and so you thought you were. Or you thought you made yourself okay. I've known people who, when they're really struggling with something in life, they won't come near the church, and yet I've never judged them. But they won't come near the church until they feel like they've gotten it back together, like they've cleaned themselves up, like they've made themselves okay, and then they'll come back. Because they think it's about how they look or how they clean up or how they whatever. The people, he's looking, he's looking at all of you as people and saying, stop trying to clean yourself up. I know who you really are. I love you and accept you exactly who you are. But I want more for you. I want more for you. The struggle with following a king an earthly king, an earthly leader, is that they want more for themselves. Even if they're at best a benevolent dictator, they still want their kingdom to rise and grow. And Jesus looks and says, the greatest in my kingdom is the one who learns to serve. Is it possible to truly serve Jesus as king in the world we live in? My answer to that question is, it's possible, but it's not easy. It's easier to have a casual acquaintance with them than an actual submission relationship. A lot of us go through life, we have a casual acquaintance with Jesus. We show up once in a while at church, say a few prayers, feel connected again, and then live our lives. And he's looking and saying, what about a real relationship? I had a conversation with someone on Friday night about They grew up in church, but why they don't go to church anymore? They brought it up, not me, so I felt like, hey, if you're bringing it up, it's fair game. So I said, why don't you go anymore? Because they said, you know, I I grew up going to church, and I always went, but I don't go anymore. And they looked, and they said, because the people I knew that were in church were holy on Sunday and lived like hell Monday through Saturday. I was like, wow. That's both a harsh indictment and a frightening reality. I don't think he was being judgmental. I think he was bemoaning and sad that that's what he saw in the church because the next statement is, I still love God. I've heard that the church is called hypocritical sometimes and here's my struggle with that. We gotta be real. You're gonna sin this week. But are you real and honest and repentant? Or have you just learned to hide it really good so you look really good? Because when we learn to do that, when we learn to just look really good, I really do get to live however I want because as long as people don't know what's going on. And the difference is, if I'm humble and I recognize my sin, then it's not about how I look, it's about whether or not I'm repenting and trying to change. And the difference between what somebody told me on Friday night and what I want to see is, I I don't care if you live like hell all week, just be honest and say, my life is hell, and I'm a mess. But I still want to know God. Because when we learn to hide and to polish, again, please don't yell out in the middle of the sermon, hey, I'm a sinner, I believe you. But when we learn to polish and to keep everything hidden, then it's no longer what's real or what's really happening inside. It doesn't matter what's happening inside, it's only the outside. But when I can learn to be real with people and say, I'm really struggling with this. These things are breaking me down and these things are wearing me out. But I do love God. 
The difference is, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm being honest about it. It becomes hypocritical when I become judgmental about it and I just learn to hide it. That's when it becomes hypocrisy. So, one of the reasons the church is struggling to be effective in the world anymore, and I've talked about the number of churches that close every year, the number that are shrinking. I've talked about how the church is failing at many things, and one of the reasons that is is because we want to have an acquaintanceship with Jesus, not a lordship with Jesus. Not where he's really our king, where we have this meaningful personal relationship, but I'll do it when it's convenient. I'm not asking everybody today to sell everything you own and all become monks or something. I don't know what you become when you're not Catholic, but whatever it is we become. What I'm saying is, let's start trying to really love our neighbors ourselves, or even more so, because some of us don't like ourselves that much. Let's start trying to be honest and people of integrity in our work. Not seeing what's the least amount I can do, but how can I serve my coworker? Let's start genuinely and honestly giving who we are and what we have, not because of what I'm going to get, but because of who I am. What would look like life look like if Jesus were my king instead of just my friend? Or better yet, what would it look like if Jesus were really my friend that I spend time talking with, but also King and Lord of my life? What would it look like if I'm really giving who I am to him with no strings attached and following him just with an open heart and an open mind? Is it always easy? No, it takes faith. And that's where it gets difficult because faith is messy. We want simple answers and faith is... Faith isn't easy, but it should be simple. It should be understandable. But it's not supposed to be easy. And we want something that's easy and convenient. Let's stop looking for the easy and convenient and start asking ourselves, what do I have to change, God, to really be used in the way you want me to be used? What do I have to give up? What do I have to let go of so that I can serve you the way you've called me to serve you. There's a lot of costs in following a king. And it's not enough to just yell, he's the king of kings on Easter Sunday. Hallelujah. Twice, it's Easter. It's not enough to do that if we're not going to live the life the rest of the time. And I'm not saying it's easy because it is a struggle but it's real, and it's worth the struggle. Father God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for gathering place. Lord, I pray that people would be challenged today, be inspired, be motivated, be moved. And I pray that people will just ask themselves this week, in all honesty, when they're laying in bed at night or driving to work in the morning or just sitting, having a coffee, just ask themselves, What would it look like if Jesus were really king in my life? And God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would show them what it would look like for them, what they would need to change, what they need to think about, what they need to begin doing or stop doing, Father God. Let them see that. Not just somebody up front telling them, 
But Father God, you speaking deep within their soul about things so that they become who you created them to be and they can truly choose to have you be king in their life. In your name, amen. A couple of things about the playground real quick um, before we go. Number one, if you have kids, please, it looks like, hey, look, the playground's up. Do not let your kids go on it. We left plastic on it. We put up police tape, but they're not going to read. They're going to crawl under that or through it and get on something. It's not secured and anchored. It just takes us a while to put it together, all right? So please, please don't let them go out there and end up getting hurt. It's a solid concrete floor. None of the rubber matting's even down. Second thing about the playground, our goal is to have it done by Easter. If you can give a couple hours today, Robert is staying to work on it today. Robert's kind of our overseer. Robert, raise your hand so people know who you are. A little higher so they can actually see your hand. Robert is our general contractor on the playground. Um, He needs two or three people if you have time. And he said he knows it's last minute. So if you don't have time, that's fine. But if you're like, oh, I was normally, I go home and watch football. But now that football season's done, I just stare at the blank TV until football season starts again. Um... Or whatever. I don't know what you do on Sundays. Take a nap, go for a picnic. But if you've got an hour or two that you can give, Robert will be starting probably in 20 to 30 minutes. And he just said he's going to work a couple hours this afternoon just to get some stuff done. So if you're available, stick around, help him out, listen to him since he's actually a contractor and knows what he's talking about. And um, thanks for coming. We'll see you guys next week.